Well, good morning and welcome to Bridgewater. My name is Tim and I'm one of the pastors here and we're delighted you're here, especially on a day like this. Rose might have been a little sketchy and daylight savings, so it is exciting to be here. Um, I just want to echo what Jeff said in the host time about the teacher gift bags. We have an incredible opportunity to love on the teachers and the faculty in the SV School District. And so if you can help and be a part of that, we would love that. We're going to need help um, assembling and packing those bags. There's going to be a lot of teacher stuff in there, post-it notes, uh, tissues, pencils, all the good things that teachers need, and some Dunkin' Donut gift cards. So we need help packing those, and we're going to need help distributing that. We'll give you more information. So if you're able to help, that would be awesome. Like Jeff said, we believe that saved people serve people. So that's why we're doing that. So by way of showing hands, um, how many of you have a hobby? A few hobbyists. Okay, awesome. I have a couple hobbies. One of them today is drinking coffee. That's definitely a hobby. Yes, you need to wake up on daylight savings. Uh, another hobby is exercising. I did not get to do that today, but did get here safely. And uh, I also enjoy reading. And my friend Rob he has a couple hobbies. Uh, Rob likes to find things on the side of the road and bring them home. <laughs> and so he loves to take something that he has found that is discarded or worn out or just tired looking, broken, and bring that home and see if he can make something useful out of that. You know the type of person I'm talking about. And so Rob actually owns his own business, and at his shop, he has a forge. And the forge has nothing to do with his business at all. He just likes to make things. And so one night, I'm over at Rob's shop, and he says, hey, Tim, do you want to make something? I'm like, yes. So he says, well, I found some old railroad spikes. I think we can make some knives out of these. I'm like, absolutely. The question is, how do you take an old worn-out, rusty, decayed railroad spike and make something useful out of it. Well, he fires up this forge to about 3,000 degrees, and you take this old, tired-looking railroad spike, and you put it in this forge, and then when it gets hot enough, it starts to glow orange, you pull it out, you put it on the anvil, and with a hammer, you begin to pound on this thing. And you continue that process, heating it up, pounding on it, heating it up, pounding on it. And you continue that process, and eventually, this railroad spike gets flatter and flatter and flatter, and then you begin to lengthen it. And at that point, it's black, ugly looking, and still looks like junk. And so I take a Sharpie, and I begin to sketch out the shape of the blade that I want. And then we take that piece of metal, and we take it to the, the sander, right? And we start with, um, I think it was like 24 grit, and then we work all the way up to like 600 grit. We're starting to fine it and work out all of the imperfections. You see, that heating up and that pounding, that takes out all of the, the gas pockets. It, it, it drives out all of the impurities, and it begins to shape and mold this railroad spike into something useful. And uh, kind of proud that I actually made something that might look like a knife. It's not really beautiful, but this was my first attempt. Yes. 
It is sharp. It can open envelopes. And so as I was making this and I was thinking about it, you know, God has a similar process for the church where he wants to take a messed up church and begin to shape us after his own desires. That's the process of forging. So what does that look like? How does God take a church and forge it? In other words, how does God make a church pure? And that's what we're going to talk about today in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. While you're turning there, just give you a quick recap. The first four chapters, Paul talked about unity, right? We talked about chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, unity, unity, unity. And now he's done talking about unity, and he's going to talk about how do we keep the church pure, but before we get into the passage, I just want to give you one introductory thought that you need to get your mind wrapped around, and it's this. Struggling with sin isn't the problem, but defending sin is. What I mean by that is you and I will fight against sin, will battle against sin, will wrestle and struggle. When I use the word struggle, I'm not talking about surrendering or just giving up. I'm talking about actively fighting. And as a follower of Christ, you and I will fail. And we'll get back up and we'll continue to struggle. That's called the Christian life. The problem is when we begin to justify or defend our sin. And so I want you to get this in your mind really clearly. Struggling with sin is not the problem. You and I will struggle with sin, and we will continue to struggle, but we can't defend it. So with that in mind, let's jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Paul says, it's been reported. The whole town is talking about it. Everybody knows. People have come to me and they've said, look, this is what this guy is doing. He's sleeping with his stepmom. Gross. I mean, the yuck factor is off the charts. All right? Now, remember what we've talked about with Corinth, right? Corinth is like sin city. People come to Corinth, and it is a melting pot of cultures. It is a melting pot of religions, and they come to Corinth to take a break and a holiday from morality. There are hundreds of temples in Corinth where people go to these temples, and part of their worship process is to spend time with a prostitute. And that's the culture. It is sin city. And so what Paul is saying is, Corinth, as bad as it is, Corinth isn't okay with what you're doing. Rome isn't okay with what you're doing. And yet, you are? So Paul's addressing two problems here. One is bad, and the other is worse. The first problem is pretty clear, right? This guy is living in sexual immorality. 
And that word, uh, sexual immorality, that's the idea of, of pornea, right? It's, we get the word pornography there. It is a big umbrella for all sexual sin. It's a problem, right? But Paul says, look, you tolerating this, you not doing anything with it, you defending it, that's worse. Paul wasn't shocked about what this guy was doing. He wasn't shocked that he was living in sexual sin. He knew that was the culture. He knew Christians still wrestled with it. But he says, I can't believe you're actually proud. You're arrogant. You're boasting about doing this. You're boasting about defending this man and his sin. The point is, what's most scandalous about 1 Corinthians 5 is not this man's sin, but the fact that they were defending it. They wouldn't do anything about it. He says, you are arrogant. You're proud, present tense. You're going on and on. Look how great we are. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Jesus. And uh, I have all this worldly wisdom. And he says, yeah, and you're also defending your sin. You're arrogant. Cut it out. You have this tolerance, and you think it's okay. Imagine you have cancer, and a doctor knows about it. And instead of talking to you about it, instead of rolling out a course of action, the doctor says, you know what? I'm just not going to say anything about it because I love them. I don't want to have that difficult conversation. You know how upset they're going to be? And the treatment, that's going to be painful. Imagine a doctor not saying anything to you. You would be furious. You would be irate. And just as we would expect a doctor to lovingly have a conversation with you or I and say, look, here's what we found. Just as though we would expect a doctor to lovingly take a knife and remove that cancer, the church ought to lovingly have conversations. Keyword, lovingly have conversations with people and say, hey, here's what I've seen in your life. Here's what I've noticed. This doesn't line up with scripture. It's sin and it's unbiblical. Just as we would, we would have a blacksmith to, to drive out all of those impurities and the gas pockets and the, the, the brokenness of that and begin to craft and forge something that he desires, God uses the church. God uses people like you and I as a part of that forging process. And he says, you should have mourned over this. Your hearts should have been broken over this man's sin. And you're not sad. You're not broken over it. You're not crying. I think there's a big problem when the church no longer mourns over sin. If we get to that place where we're no longer sad or broken or mourning over people's sin, we're in big trouble. We're dying. We can't let that happen. So struggling with sin isn't the problem, but defending it is. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. For my part, 
Even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Paul says, it's not just my opinion. I'm passing judgment on this guy. What are we going to do with them? Paul says, look what we ought to do. Verse 4. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. What? What is he talking about? Like, hand this man over to Satan? What does that even look like? Joe, Satan. Satan, Joe. Have a nice day. Or, or is he talking about like going back into this back room where Mason keeps all the youth stuff and say, hey, let's go get the snakes and the incense and Joe to Satan. Like, what is he talking about? I don't think that he's literally handing anyone over to Satan. Like, no one, there's no demons, there's no Satan that's coming at the door and saying, okay, bring him over. What Paul is talking about is this man is living like an unbeliever. He's living like the world. So hand him over to the world. There's a lot of differing opinions out there. Here's Tim's take on this, which is almost always right. I think there's a spiritual protection within the church that when you place your faith in Christ, there's a sense of spiritual protection that Jesus is overseeing the church and the world is run and ruled by Satan. He is the ruler of that dominion. He is the prince of the air. And so Paul is saying he's acting like the world. Send him out to the world. I don't know if Paul is saying whether he is or isn't a Christian, right? It's hard to, to draw that line. It's hard to make that distinction. And so you might say, hey, I'm not sure if he is or isn't a Christian, but here's what I know is true. He is not acting like a follower of Jesus, so let's send him out. And here's the reason. The destruction of the flesh. Like, well, that's kind of creepy. Like, what, what does that mean? I don't think the literal destruction of his skin, I think he's talking about that sin nature that's inside of that. That Paul says, send him out. We want that sin nature, that, that bent towards sin to be destroyed so that, here's the purpose, his spirit may be saved. The goal is restoration. The goal is that this individual, through these conversations and through this process, would go, oh, hold on. This really is wrong. I need to repent. I need to make things right with God. Jesus actually says something very similar in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, he says, if your brother or sister sins, what should you do? Go and point out their fault. Between who? Between like the whole small group? Between everybody in the church? No, between the two of you. And if they listen, you have won them over. So the idea is, if I know that somebody is living in sin, it's obvious I 
if I really love them, I ought to go and talk to them and keep the circle as small as possible and just talk to them one-on-one. And here's what that looks like. I go to them and I say, look, I love you. I really care about you. But what you're doing is sinful, it's wrong, and it's unbiblical. And God loves you. And you need to repent. And I keep on having that conversation one-on-one until it is clear that they're not listening. And then he says, if they don't listen, do what? Turn up the volume a little bit. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by testimony of two or three witnesses. So the idea is, have that conversation again. Just turn the volume up a little bit. And I bring somebody with me so they can be another set of ears and another set of eyes. And then go, yeah, Tim, I think they are listening. Or, or no, Tim, I, I don't think they are listening. I don't think they're getting it. And we go to them and we say, look, we love you. We care about you. But what you're doing is wrong. It's sinful. And the goal is restoration. It's not to expose them. It's not to humiliate them. And again, we're keeping the circle as small as possible. There's two of us. Nobody knows about it. We're we're keeping it private. And we're talking to them. And if they refuse to listen, he says, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. The whole time, the goal is restoration. Restoration is the idea of of mending something that's been broken. It's helping them become more like Christ. And God uses these conversations all the time to help you and I to become more like Jesus. Just like we would want a doctor to lovingly come to us and say, hey, here's something that came up. Here's something you ought to know about Here's a a plan. Here's a treatment. Here's a a trajectory for you. We ought to be going to people and talking to them. And God often uses these conversations to help us become more like Jesus. And here in 1 Corinthians 5, I'm assuming that some of these conversations have already happened. And this man has said, no way, no how. And the church just said, ah, let's let's just leave it alone, right? And Paul hears about it, and he says, look, this is not good. We've got to remove him from the church. Send him out. Deliver him to Satan. Satan is the prince of the world, the god of this age. He runs the world system. Send him out there. He's no longer under the protection. Now, here's what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that we we stick a bouncer at the door and says, come on in. Nope. You in, nope, we're not doing that, right? The goal is not to keep people out of the church. He says, treat them like a sinner and a tax collector. Well, how does Jesus treat those people? He loves them. He loves them. And so we ought to continue loving those people, engaging with them. You're welcome here. You're just not a member anymore. And that is a hard place to be. But remember, here's the purpose. Verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved. Purpose is restoration, not punishment. 
Why would you do that? Because this man is destroying the church. He is corrupting it. And so I think in 2 Corinthians, many commentators believe that this man actually changed. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 6, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. So here's what happened. Many commentators believe that this man that we just talked about in 1 Corinthians 5 was set out from the church. He repented And now the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians, is saying, yeah, are we able to let him back in? Are you sure it's okay? And Paul's saying, yes, he already repented. He was restored. Let him back in. And so the process that God has laid out works. Not always, not 100%, but this is what God's word says. It's never loving to overlook a Christian's self-destructive behavior. So many times we are terrified of having these conversations. But I believe that's part of the forging process. For a Christian, loving intervention is always the right thing to do. It's hard conversations. They're difficult. They're not something that I look forward to doing. Paul goes on to explain why. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that, here's the purpose, you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Let me explain. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed Therefore, in light of everything I've just said, therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So leaven symbolically is used to represent sin. He says if you got a little bit of sin in there, get rid of it because it will corrupt and spoil the whole batch. What he's saying is a little bit of cancer will spread throughout the whole body. Get rid of it. Sin is contagious. You and I, we are positionally separated from sin. And Paul says, now we've got to live that out. So here's what I think Paul is getting at. A God-honoring church can't have Christians living however they want. These are people that are claiming to be Christ followers. And this church is pretending like everything is okay. Verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. What is he saying, right? You, you can't just avoid bad people. If you were going to avoid all sinful people, you would have to leave the world. That's not what Paul is saying. 
Verse 11, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Christians are really good at judging people outside the church, aren't we? We love our sandwich boards. We love to pick it. We love to tell the world how bad and how evil they are. Paul says, it's not my place to judge everybody outside the church. Paul says, but it is my job to judge people inside the church. You say, wait a minute. I thought the Bible said not to judge people. Yes. But here the Bible says I should judge people. Yes. I'm a little confused, Tim. Yes. Here's what's going on. In Matthew 7, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't judge other people because if you do, you will also be judged. And he's talking about religious hypocrisy. He's talking to people who, who look down their nose at people and they go, oh, I don't know about you. You're not really doing it right. And, and Jesus says, take the plank, take the two by four out of your eye before you go and say, hey, it looks like you got a little something in your eye there, a little speck. Jesus is talking about religious hypocrisy. Don't judge like those people. Don't think you're proud and you've got it all together and you've never made a mistake. Don't be like that person. What Paul is saying is, yes, inside the church, we ought to be fruit inspectors. We ought to have loving conversations with people and say, hey, what I've seen or what I've noticed, help me understand that. Give me an idea. What's going on? Because it seems like this, and this is what the Bible says. And maybe you're just clearing up a misunderstanding. Or maybe God will use you to have a difficult conversation with somebody, and all of a sudden, boom, the light goes on. They go, whoa, you're right. I shouldn't be doing that. He says, these people who claim to be Christians, but they're living in a different lifestyle. He says, don't even eat with them. I don't think he means you can't even have like an Oreo with them. I think he means don't hang out with them in such a way that they think everything is all good, right? And typically, you may be hearing this sermon and you may think, I'm going to go to one extreme or another. Some of you are hearing this sermon and you're like, Tim, Thank you for going over Matthew 18 because this week I'm going to Matthew 18 somebody. Right? Don't be that person. Okay, We're not talking about being the sin police. And the rest of you, there's probably like three of you who are like ready to Matthew 18 somebody. The rest of you are over here. You're like, everything's good, Tim. Judge not. I'm just good with it. Don't swing to either one of those extremes. The idea is we're not the sin police, but we are willing to have difficult conversations when it's necessary. So here's what Paul is saying. 
you and I, we ought to be willing to have these difficult conversations. God simply is inviting the church to really live like and act like a family. But I don't want you to miss the point. Here's how we might miss the point. First, give me the next slide. Next slide. Here we are. Too many churches ignore the blatant sin of Christians. That's one of the ways that you and I can miss the point. Some churches think, this is too hard. I'm just not going to do it ever. We can't be that church. Secondly, too many Christians ignore the blatant sin of other Christians. Not only churches, but Christians say, you know what? That's too hard. Having a conversation is too difficult. I don't want to do that. I don't want to upset the apple cart. I'll just pretend like it's not happening. We can't do that. Another way we miss the point is too many Christians think it's our job to avoid non-Christians. That's not the point either. The point is not to just avoid everybody who is not like us. We ought to be out in the world. We are called to go and make disciples. Jesus loved the sinners and the tax collectors. We ought to be in the world. Next way we miss this is too many Christians judge non-Christians by Christian standards. They judge non-Christians. It's not our job to expect the world to live like they have a relationship with Jesus. God has to radically transform their lives first. They're going to live like unbelievers because they are unbelievers. So don't expect anyone who doesn't follow God to live like they do. So how do we apply this? One, we need to be willing to speak the truth in love. We need to be willing to speak the truth in love. Secondly, we need to be ready to respond well if people come to us. Are you the type of person who is always offended no matter what? Or are we willing to respond well when someone says, hey, here's something I've observed, or here's something I've noticed, or hey, what you're doing, or what you said, that wasn't kind, that wasn't loving. Third, one of our core values here is life is better connected. God uses the church. That's why we have small groups, because we believe life is better connected. We want you to have the kind of relationships here that are made and crafted where you can have those types of conversations People can say, hey, how are you doing? And you can be open and honest. People can come to you and say, here's what I've noticed. They can go, you're right. I dropped the ball. You're right. That was not right. You're correct. That was wrong. And God uses those types of conversations. As the hammer is hitting me on the anvil, he's using people like you in my life as that hammer or the anvil or as that sanding paper in those conversations to cultivate a sense of holiness to help me become more like Jesus. And as I was hammering out that railroad spike, I began to think about, wow, God uses this fire and this 
hammer to drive out all of the impurities and all the imperfections and to use this to make it something that me as the blacksmith is desiring. And God does the same thing in his church. And so this week, who do you need to come alongside? Not necessarily coming with a hammer, but just who do you need to come alongside and love on? Or this week, are you willing to respond well? Do you go through that process and you go, you know what, I can go through that process and be patient? Or are we arrogant and prideful going, back off me, leave me alone? So as you go this week, my challenge to you is that we would love the people in our church enough to have difficult conversations. Let me pray with you. God in heaven, we are we're thankful for this process. We're thankful that you walk us through how it is to have difficult conversations with people. God, we recognize that we're a church filled with people, myself included, who need to change and need to become more like you. And I am thankful for the people you've put in my life who've been willing to have difficult conversations. Let us be the church. Use this process to forge us into the church that you desire, that we would be a healthy church that is fixed on going and making more and better disciples of Jesus. God, let us do all of that in love, in grace, in mercy. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song.